I'm so happy to be here. I haven't been in California for about 25 years. I flew out here with Kevin Paulson, <clears throat> and I did not know that he was born and raised here until after we got here. And he has been raise, raving about the grapes. <laughs> I want to thank Pastor Bohr for the privilege of occupying his pulpit. Just before we came out on the platform, Eileen came back there with the specific purpose of telling me to smile. <laughs> and it reminded me of my first appointment as pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was as associate pastor at the Battle Creek Tabernacle. And the first time I was privileged to preach there, when I got up to the pulpit, I noticed a sign that it said, smile, sir. So I'm going to smile just to prove to you that I can do it. Are you ready? I'm not a really, really a smiley person because I'm a Scandinavian. I'm what's known as a Finn Swede or as the Finns say, Suom and Rotsalainen. Any Finns, Swedes here? If there are, I'd like to meet you after the service. One morning when I came to my office at the seminary, at seven o'clock, I always came at seven, I found taped to my office door this photograph of a beautiful eagle. We have a lot of those in the UP with a piercing look on his countenance. And it says at the top, I am smiling. Now that I have proven to you that I can smile, I want to tell you that I'm not smiling today because our church is in a serious crisis. And that's why we've been here for the last three days. Before we have a prayer, I want to tell you that I'm going to break a homiletical rule and read the sermon text at the end of the sermon instead of at the beginning. And I also want to do something I've never done before. 
I want to dedicate this sermon to the memory of four people whom I loved and admired greatly and whose voice we would happily welcome today, but unfortunately their voices are silent. I'm referring to Dr. Leslie Harding, Dr. C. Mervyn Maxwell, Dr. Gerhard Hazel, and Mrs. Hetty Jemison. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have met as your people in this sanctuary to worship you today and to hear your word. We pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Open our ears to hear what you have to say to us today. And give us the grace, the determination, the will, the faith to respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I began my ministry in my last Lutheran parish, which by the way is only a little over a half a mile from the little Adventist church that I'm pastoring for the last 20 years in retirement. Interesting, interesting situation. But when I began my ministry there in the 60s, it was not long before I discovered that the congregation had been deeply influenced by the prevailing social gospel of the times. So I faced a challenge. How to counteract such influence and get the congregation on a biblical path? I started by consistently preaching expository sermons that focused on the scriptures. I preached longer sermons. 20 minutes was customary. I extended it to 30. <laughs> now I preach 45 minutes or longer because I'm an old man, I have a lot to say and a little time to say it. <laughs> Some folks didn't like the longer sermons. But some did. I also tried to start a Sunday school class for adults that would concentrate on Bible study. But I had few takers. I remember also as a young minister 
being invited to preach a series of sermons at a Bible camp. That's what they called them in those days. And after one of the evening meetings, a lady came up to me and asked me if she could talk with me. And I said, yes, of course, but they were turning out the lights in the chapel, so we had to sit on the cement steps underneath one light bulb. So we sat down and I asked her, how can I help you? She said, well, I've been a, a believer for many years, but I've got a real serious problem. She said, I, I don't have the assurance of the forgiveness of sin. I love God, but I'm not, I don't have the assurance that he has forgiven my sin. And I thought, wow, they didn't teach me anything about how to deal with that in the seminary. So I shot a prayer up to God, and he helped me. I said, well, let's open our Bibles to 1 John 1, 9. So she opened her Bible, and I said, read, would you read that verse? out loud, and she, she did. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I said to her, have you confessed your sins? She said, oh, many, many times. I said, are you forgiven? She said, I don't know. So I said, read it again. So she read it out loud again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I asked, have you confessed your sins? She said, I just told you, yes, many times. I said, are you forgiven? I don't know. I said, read it again. <laughs> and she looked at me, you know, you've got to be kidding. I said, come on, read it again. So she did. And I asked her, have you confessed your sins? Yes. I said, are you forgiven? This time there was silence. And I didn't interrupt her silence. Finally, she said, I guess I am. And I said, how do you know that? And she said, because it says so right here. <laughs> I learned a lot that day. Well, anyway, during this time, starting the Sunday school class for adults that failed, and this experience with that lady, I've often wondered what happened to her. Two other significant things happened. My wife was the vacation Bible school leader that particular summer, and when the materials arrived, 
that she had sent for dealing with human origins, she was alarmed. And she came to me and showed the materials to me, and she said, we can't teach this. It was teaching evolution, not biblical creation. I told her to send it back. And I wrote a letter to the denominational publishers explaining why. By that time, she had become interested in the Adventist church through a friend. She's staying with them now in Berrien Springs while I'm here. And that same summer, the Vacation Bible School material was on creation. And it was biblical all the way through. The very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created. That's what it says. And then it tells us how he did it. By his word. Now, I'm going to insert a little footnote here. All of this was background to later events. Eventually, about 20-some years ago, the ordination of women ministers. And in 2009, at their annual convention, that particular Lutheran denomination, after a 10 year sociological study of human sexuality, not a biblical study, a sociological study. They approved same-sex marriage and the ordination of gay clergy. How was that possible? It was possible because the principles of interpretation that we call hermeneutics were in place. The progression from evolution to approval of same-sex marriage was inevitable. Now somebody's going to say that my calling this to your attention is scare tactics. But it's not. It's fact. And the footnote. About the same time I attended a meeting of Lutheran pastors, during which the discussion concerned hermeneutics. And I felt obliged to defend the authority of the Bible. And one of the young pastors who was a recent graduate of the same seminary that I had attended came up to me and shook his finger in my face and very angrily and vehemently said to me, the time is coming 
when people like you will not be allowed in the ministry. Now, most of you who know some of my story probably know the rest that happened after these events that I've described. That by the fall of 1970 brought me as a Master of Theology student to the Theological Seminary at Andrews University. I was still a Lutheran, still skeptical, and my primary goal at that time was to discover whether Jesus lived on the campus of Andrews University in the lives of the students and the faculty. And I discovered that he did. I eventually decided to leave the Lutheran Church ministry, become a Seventh-day Adventist. Nobody made any promises to me. I didn't know what was going to happen. I eventually ended up as a member of the faculty myself, the pinnacle of my ministry. It was wonderful those years. I remember a number of the faculty members invited me to meet with them uh, every Wednesday evening. The only condition was that I tell them a week in advance what I would like to discuss so they could prepare. W.G.C. Murdoch was there, who was the dean. Dr. Tom Blinko was the chair of the theology department. Dr. Wilbur Alexander, Dr. C. Mervyn Maxwell, a couple others I can't remember. It was masterfully done. And by the way, everybody treated me with respect. Everybody called me Pastor Holmes. Nobody intimated that I was an apostate. I felt accepted, even appreciated. We studied. It was masterfully done with one question in mind. What does the Bible say? Now against that kind of a background, you might imagine how impressed I was with the Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath school lessons. Remember, I couldn't get an adult Sunday school class started to start a Bible, to study the Bible. And here I found a church in which a large percentage of its membership attended an hour Sabbath school class before the worship service. And I thought, boy, these people are something. They're in church all, all morning on, on Saturday. I wasn't used to that. 
and those lessons exposed biblical truth in depth and applied it. And how impressed I also was with the prevailing expository approach to preaching that I heard in those days. All emphases that were part of my spiritual heritage because my spiritual roots are in the Finnish Lutheran Church of Finland, which was characterized by a strong biblicism on the one hand and major emphasis on revival and awakening on the other. So right from the start of my spiritual life, as I began to read and study the Bible, I was deeply impressed by the Apostle Paul's reverence for and reliance upon the scripture. And later, as I dug deeper into the Protestant Reformation, I was so impressed by the impact that Paul had made on Martin Luther who is still one of my heroes. I was so impressed with the chapter on the Reformation and Luther in Ellen White's book, The Great Controversy. You remember that Luther at the Diet of Worms stood before the representatives of both secular and religious power and authority and under extreme pressure and even threat to his life threat to renounce the convictions that he had declared in his 95 theses in 1517, almost 500 years, this two years from now. And he defied the, the, the Holy Roman Emperor and the representatives of the Pope. Can you imagine, picture that, at this Huge gathering. Here's this one simple monk dressed in his monk's habit. And he defied them both by saying this. He said, they asked him to recant. You know, not asked him, but threatened him. You have to. And he said, since then, your majesty, referring to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, and your lordships, the Roman Catholic prelates that were there, since you desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, and then he inserted a parenthesis. He said, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything 
for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, he said. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Words that changed history. Now that kind of confident and fearless witness to scripture is my spiritual heritage. And nobody told me that I had to abandon that heritage in order to become a Seventh-day Adventist. It's still there. And I believe that it fortifies me for today. That's my spiritual heritage, and I was convinced that it was that also of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I want to say to you folks, if we lose that, we lose everything. I was so impressed with the Bible conferences that were held throughout North America in 1974. I was baptized in January of 71 by Dr. Tom Blinko at Pioneer Memorial Church and shortly after ordained into the Adventist ministry. But I was so impressed with those Bible conferences in 1974 and also with Ellen White's hermeneutics or principles of interpretation that one doesn't have to be a trained scholar to understand and apply them. And by the way, when I studied Adventist church history, you know, when we talk about the group that were called the pioneers, just a handful of people from many different churches meeting together to study the Bible that were influential in founding this church, this movement, not one of them, not one single one of that group had a PhD. Not one of them was, was a scholar trained in the biblical languages. Their method was simple, twofold, study the Bible and pray. Discuss, yes. Their discussions were lively, but they hammered out the doctrines on the basis of the word of God that initiated this movement. Ellen White's principles are simple. Number one, the Bible is its own interpreter. Number two, take the Bible as it reads. Number three, focus on the Bible's plain statements. Number four, explain the language of the Bible according to its obvious meaning. You can use those principles and arrive at 
confident conclusions about God's truth. I found a spiritual home and I joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church and its ministry confident that it was in submission to the full authority of the Bible. And then this issue emerged. And I resisted for two years getting involved in it because I didn't want to be crucified on that cross. My wife warned me over and over again. She said, don't get involved, you're gonna get in trouble. But the more I saw the way the Bible was being used, or rather misused, and trying to convince the church that the Bible doesn't say what it says, the more I came under the impression that I had to do what I did and write the book, The Tip of an Iceberg. It's the 20th anniversary of the publication of that book in May of this year. It's a form of deception, folks, to try to convince the church that the Bible doesn't say what it says. And any Reformation scholar knows that Luther was heavily influenced by the epistles of Paul. That he drew theological doctrinal knowledge from, from Paul's letters as well as personal faith and the kind of courage and spiritual strength that he needed at the time of crisis. The words of Paul changed Luther. And through him, the course of history and the world. You and I would not be here today in this sanctuary, preaching, teaching, studying, believing the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, were it not for the words of Paul. Words that were heard by a simple monk who was sincerely trying to do everything that he thought was necessary to be accepted by God. But his efforts didn't satisfy, including self-flagellation, until he heard from Romans 3.24 that he was justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But before he could hear that, he had to hear something else. He called it sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone as the source of God's revelation 
and of truth. But before sola, sola scriptura comes something else. Before sola gratia, grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone, comes sola scriptura, the Bible alone. That was the major fundamental truth of the Reformation, sola scriptura. Everything doctrinal and experiential depends on and derives from sola scriptura. But you know, the medieval church never accepted that. Insisting that tradition and the power of bishops read administrators, theologians, are equal, if not preeminent, to scripture. In other words, the authority of the church was above that of the word of God. Some Protestants today give lip service to sola scriptura and in some instances abandoning, abandoning it altogether in favor of what is called felt human needs and the pressures and demands of contemporary culture. Now here's another footnote. This has culminated in a recent joint Lutheran-Catholic declaration. Notice I said joint Lutheran-Catholic declaration that the Reformation was a mistake. That the protest is over. Of course, it would be over to many. It's inevitable. If you throw out sola scriptura, you throw out the Reformation. And the footnote. Disconnecting the Old from the New Testament, law from gospel, in some instances insisting that the Holy Spirit is doing new things in the church in our time. Have you heard that recently? And put the authority of the Spirit above that of the Word. But Ellen White says that the Holy Spirit never leads us in a way that's contradictory to the scriptures. Attention needs to be drawn once again to Paul's reverence for and reliance upon the scriptures. 
He begins Romans by calling attention in the, in the first chapter, verse 2, to the scriptures, to the Holy Scriptures. And when he deals with justification in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, he asks, what does the scripture say? And he answers, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then in chapter 9 of Romans, verse 6, he calls scripture, quote, the word of God. And in making clear that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek with regard to salvation, he says in chapter 10, verse 11, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. And in chapter 11, verse 2, he underscores that, quote, God has not rejected his people, the Jews. And then he asks, do you know what the scripture says? According to Paul, it is in the scripture, in the Bible, that we find hope. Chapter 15, verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And when it came to the authority that he claimed for the preaching of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul said unequivocally in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, he said that it was, quote, in accordance with the scriptures. And speaking further of hope in the context of his own ministry, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 13 through 18, he says, since we have the same spirit of faith as Jesus had, According to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. Then he says, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we don't lose heart, he says. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. Throughout Romans and 
First and Second Corinthians. And Lutherans love those three books. At least they used to. Paul uses the phrase, it is written over and over again. At least 13 times. And when he says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, and chapter 7, verse 1, that there is no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness, no fellowship with light and darkness, calling followers of Christ, quote, the temple of the living God. He quotes Leviticus chapter 26. As God said, Paul says, go out from their midst and be separate from them and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Then he says, Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, whether Paul talks about his development of the truth, doctrine, that by the way, that's what doctrine means, truth. Whether he's talking about that or if he's talking about the development of his own theological thought or whether he's addressing issues in the developing early church, his reference always is to scripture. Now contrast that with trying to convince the church that the Bible doesn't really say what it says. No wonder that deeply involved in the development and organizing of the early church, he underscored for both Timothy and Titus that, as he says to Timothy, as for you. You know, when I read that, it's very personal. He's saying that to me. As for you, Brother Holmes, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been, been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out, inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man, that is the messenger of God, may be competent and equipped for every good work. Now another footnote. We need to be aware of the fact that 
Paul's letters bear witness that he was as conscious of the leading of the Holy Spirit as he was of the power and influence of the scriptures. However, and here is a vital principle of interpretation, which I've already mentioned from Acts of the Apostles, page 285, when she says the operations of the Spirit are always, always in harmony with the written word. So Paul was the example for those such as Timothy and Titus who would eventually take his place as spiritual leaders of the early church. And it's on the basis of, of scripture alone that both the qualifications for ministry and how the spirit empowered equipping for ministry is revealed and accomplished. And what an example Paul was. Ellen White writes in Acts of the Apostles, page 332. Listen to this. Fully convinced of the reality of the truth and trusted to him, nothing could induce Paul to handle the word of God deceitfully or to conceal the convictions of his own soul. In other words, Paul always, he was always bold enough to say, this is where I stand, and say it. Or, excuse me, he would not purchase wealth, Ellen White says, honor or pleasure by conformity to the opinions of the world. Though in constant danger of martyrdom for the faith that he had preached to the Corinthians, he was not intimidated. For he knew that he who had died and risen again would raise him from the grave and present him to the Father. Unquote. So it was in complete harmony with his faith in and reliance upon the written word of God to leave as his legacy of apostolic instruction these resounding words that we are careful to read at ordination services from 2 Timothy chapter 4, the first five verses. Now, that passage was read at both of my ordinations. I was ordained into the Lutheran ministry, 10 years later into the Adventist ministry. Now I've tried over the years to convince the brethren that because I was ordained twice I should receive double salary 
and double vacations, but I haven't been successful. And every once in a while they say that uh, what that really means is that, uh, that I need to do double work. Anyway, here, here, are the, here are the words from 2 Timothy 4. I charge you. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, young minister. I charge you. And I heard them at both of my ordinations and at every ordination that I have participated in in the Seventh-day Adventist Church since. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's the specificity. Not just preach, but preach this. Be ready, huh? not be ready in season and out of season. That is to say, when times are good and when times are bad. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming, Paul says, when people will not endure sound teaching. In other words, they won't put up with it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, he says, to every ordained minister, always be sober-minded, Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I want you to notice something. It says not only to reprove and exhort, but to rebuke. In fact, he says it three times in Titus. How is that done? How does the preacher rebuke? By throwing his weight around? By exercising authority? No. By preaching, by preaching the word. The word does the rebuking. The power is in the word, not in the preacher. Preach the word, but do it, he says, in patience and in love. Preach the word, nothing else. That's our duty. That's our calling. 
That's our ministry. That's our mission, no matter what, popular or not. And do it consistently, without deviation, without compromise of biblical principles for the sake of peace. Why? Alan White has the answer. From the Review and Herald, July 24, 1894. She says that we must often proclaim a message that is directly in opposition to the people's sins, prejudices, and customs. Read culture of the times. Why do we have to often proclaim a message that is in opposition to sins, prejudices, and so on? Why, in the context of this solemn charge, does Paul say to the, to the, to the ordinand, as for you, endure suffering? Why does he say that? Because, friends, there's a price to pay for faithfulness to God's word, to his will, to his truth. Because, Ellen White says in the same article, it is, quote, too costly to make peace with the world by giving up the principles of truth. Let the followers of Christ settle it in their minds that they will never compromise truth, never yield one iota of principle for the favor of the world, unquote. Folks, compromising the word of God is not the way to finish the work. Now, did Paul himself pay that price? Suffering, enduring suffering? Let him tell the story himself, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 24. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. In danger from rivers from robbers, from my own people. He lost friends. You know, as precious as it is, there are some things that are more important 
than friendship. He goes on, from my own people, from Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, all from false brothers. He was betrayed by false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Wow. There's a price to pay. And as we look at the mission of our church and the times in which we live, let us trust that, as Ellen White puts it in Great Controversy, page 595, God will have a people on earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis, notice, of all reforms, all changes. And also that, as she says in Selected Messages, volume two, page 380, the church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. Thank God for that. It remains, she says. None, listen to this, none but those who have been overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and the true. The church will remain true to the word of God. But that will not happen, notice, without the word of their testimony. We have to stand up and be counted. When the issue is truth, there's no such thing as anonymity. Remember Luther. Here I stand. I can't do anything else. Then she goes on. And she says that it's the very struggle for biblical truth that makes the church strong. She says, quote, the remnant that purify their souls by obeying the truth gather strength from the trying process. Amen. You know what my wife said when all of this agony began to take place? She said, you know, I think it's God's will that the remnant church go through this agony. Amen. 
And I said, why do you think that? She said, because I think it's God's, part of God's answer to our prayers for revival and reformation. Amen. Now we're hearing many appeals for unity today. And we all know that unity is essential to finish the mission that we have been given. And I want to borrow a metaphor. Some of you will recognize the source of it. And say, yes, we must sing in harmony, that is, in agreement in thought and action. But in order to sing in harmony, this choir knows what I'm talking about. In order to sing in harmony, we have to sing in unison, which means to sing the same song with the same sound and the same pitch, with our eyes fixed on the director, spelled with a capital D, and the score as written by the composer. No choir can sing in harmony or in unison apart from unity. If each member or segment, such as the tenors or the sopranos, does not sing the same music, what happens? Only discord and disharmony. And you'd put your hands over your ears. Finally, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, speaking of himself as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. The Apostle Paul made it clear that, as he says, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. A steward is one who takes care of, who cares for, and who protects. One who can be depended on to stay true to the word of God. And then he says, I apply this to myself, he says in verse 6. Quote, for your benefit. He said, I apply what I'm saying, not just for me, but for your benefit. For the church, for you and for me that you may learn by, from us, not, listen, not to go beyond what is written. As stewards of the mysteries of God, it, it is our duty to affirm and sustain the biblical trajectory, and I'm borrowing a word there, of male headship leadership in the home and in the church and not go beyond what is written in the scriptures. Amen. Leadership that began before the fall, continued through the Old Testament priesthood and the New Testament apostles and into the early church 
through the Holy Spirit-inspired instructions of Paul to Timothy and Titus. As stewards of the mysteries of God, it is our duty to pay careful attention to Paul's counsel to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20 and quote, guard the deposit. That is to say the revealed word, the doctrine, the truth that has been entrusted to us. Are we going to be trustworthy and do that and guard that truth no matter what price it costs and concerning the truth itself. Listen to this. Ellen White says, early writings, page 96, truth itself is straight, plain, clear, and stands out boldly in its own defense. It doesn't take a lot of words and involved explanation to do it. Now concerning hermeneutics, the interpretation or the understanding and application of the truth, she exhorts all of us, members, pastors, leaders, evangelists, scholars, teachers, first selected messages, volume one, page 181, she urges us to quote, let the plain, simple statements of the word of God be food for your mind. Speculating, listen to this, speculating upon ideas that are not clearly presented there is dangerous business. Here is the motivation for this symposium. I'm so glad that I've been able to participate at age 85. I'm so glad Pastor Bohr that you took the bit in your teeth and did it. Is there going to be fallout? Oh yeah. It's already started on the blogs. My final comment. It is our duty, and this is why we're here, as stewards of the mystery of, mysteries of God, to protect the church from a hermeneutical disaster. That's the bottom line. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.